0: Welcome to the History of Korea. I'm your host, Alan Lee. In this episode, we talk about the Han commanderies in Korea. The Han commanderies refers to the territories that Han China set up to govern Korea after conquering gojo in 108 BCE. Before we get into the history and the facts, however, I want to talk about why the Han commanderies are significant. I haven't done this in the past, but I think it's important for me to provide my perspective on why we are covering a particular topic in Korean history, and it's something I'd like to do going forward at the top of the episode. After all, if you just wanted me to read off the facts, then you would do better to go read Wikipedia, which is excellent, by the way, in presenting mainstream facts. My value add is to provide my perspective on providing context to what we think happened in as fair a manner as possible. So the Han commanderies are important because this will be the first and last time that Han China will have conquered Korea. Now, that's a uh, potentially inflammatory uh, statement to make. So let me explain myself because it is accurate. Um, China, under quote unquote foreign uh, control, has, of course, attacked Korea many, many times throughout history. So China, under the Lao Empire, conquered Gorya, as did the Jin Empire, the Mongol Empire, and the Qing Dynasty. So all of these were, quote unquote, China, but not in the way that China and, and actually Korea view China. So let me explain a little further. The empires that I just mentioned were all ethnic outsiders as defined by China. The Liao, the Jin, the Yuan, and the Qing were Qitan, Jurchen, Mongol, and Manchus, Manchurians, respectively. They were not what is considered the Han ethnicity. And as you know, the uh, modern China and actually, you know, even going fr- back further, um, uh, makes a very strong distinction between Han China and these other "quote unquote" foreign uh, ethnicities. I don't want to step into the political minefield of defining the ethnicity of Han. Uh, That's a whole new podcast, actually, not just an episode. It's enough to say that as China today and in the past defines itself, and also as Korea defines China, both mainstream Chinese and Korean histories agree that Han China has never conquered and or ruled Korea since the Han dynasty, which we are covering in this episode. From my point of view, never again has Han China sought to conquer Korea either. This is an important distinction, particularly in light of China's recent rise China was the suzerain, the hegemon, the superpower, whatever you want to call it, during the length of Korea's history, but only very rarely did it seek to overstep its boundaries in some sort of aggression. Well, um, with exception to this period and the Sui dynasty, I would say. And this is not just a modern retroactive interpretation either. Back then, the Koreans patently refused—and when I say back then, I mean during the Ming dynasty, for example— The Koreans patently refused to recognize the legitimacy of all these northern invader empires, except perhaps with the exception of the Lao, and suffered real hardship because of it. One quick example is that even after the Manchurian Qing conquered the Ming, Koreans refused to recognize them as the legitimate rulers of China and were invaded as a result. Even after defeat, the Koreans refused to adopt Qing dress and and hairstyles and clung to the Ming dynasty's cultural legacy and were constantly persecuted because of it. As we discussed in the last episode, the Han dynasty of China attacked and conquered the Wiman dynasty of gojia in 108 BCE. We will be talking about the Han commanderies extensively, but before we do that, I need to emphasize that the Han commanderies are a story of Northern Korea only. It is a more prominent history that is emphasized by historians for good reason. It's these polities that eventually go on to be the primary powers to deal with China, which has an outsized influence on unified Korea from then on. But to ignore what is happening in the southern part of the peninsula is a huge mistake because, as we'll discuss in this episode and in future episodes, it's key in finding out how Korea eventually unites itself and fights off the yoke of Han China. Therefore, this episode will talk about not just what happens between the Han Chinese and Gojoseon, but we will talk a little bit about southern the southern part of Korea, although actually we will be covering a lot of that in the next episode. It's also my attempt to pull the dialogue from a cynocentric storyline to one that is more Korea-centric. To give a very, very uninformed and, and apolog- apologetically a very superficial analogy, it's as if we were to view the history of Britain as a peripheral land conquered by the Roman Empire. At least when we talk about ancient Britain. In the same way... I've seen English language coverage of Korea in that same viewpoint. It starts with China and or Japanese history and treats Korea as the side character. Again, to continue with the admittedly horrific analogy, and I and I uh, say this because I'm not an expert in British history, but it's as if we were stud- to study Caesar's conquest of southern Britain without learning what the Scottish people were doing at the time. Um, eventually, it's the northerners who help, it, who help incite the Southerners to finally ask the Romans, for example. And this isn't just conjecture. One of the preeminent scholars of early Korea who I've been reading up a lot, uh, reading a lot of lately, Gina Lee Barnes, is actually a professor of Japanese studies who had to study Korea because of its critical in early place in early Japanese culture. Mark Byington, a professor at Harvard, whose work I heavily rely upon in this episode, started as a Korean history, but had to switch primarily to Chinese studies because that's where the funding is. So that's kind of my my take on the context of what we're about to study, and uh, let's get on with the history. So to get back to the story, after Han China topples Wiman Joseon uh, around 108 BCE, and that took about a year, that's about a year-long uh, conquer-slash-war... In accordance with its policy at the time, the Han Empire set up four commanderies in Korea to administer their newly conquered territory. Uh, and just another side note here, as with any episode discussing early history, we need to talk about our sources. So I'll, I'll be drawing heavily from, quote, the Han commanderies in early Korean history, unquote, edited by Mark um, Byington. As this book points out, all six commanderies in discussion, so There are four main ones, but there are kind of two side ones that we're going to be discussing as well, um, are believed to have been located in present-day North Korea. Therefore, there is a limit to how much evidence is available. Thankfully, there is some fairly good documentation by Koreans and Japanese and even the Chinese to the extent that it involves evidence in present-day China. But a lot of current research relies on archaeological evidence that was obtained in the mid-20th century before North Korea effectively effectively shut off access. You'll see a lot of older black and white photos and a lot of the documentation of archaeological sites were done by the Japanese. And I'll explain uh, later in episode why they were so interested. Um, hint, it's because their their, uh, their people um, had a lot of what actually came or got a lot of their culture from uh, the lilong Commandery uh, in Korea. And you'll see a lot of these black and white photos and they're dated basically prior to, you know, um, World War II and a lot of the work was done by Japan but of course when uh, after the Korean War when North Korea and South Korea split off the rest of the world including us being the English speak English speaking world were shut off from uh, largely shut off from those dig sites in North Korea but um, you'd be amazed by what archaeologists archae- archaeologists and histori- historians are able to do with um, whatever we have The Samguk Sagi contains scattered fragments about Lilong and Suantu, those are two of the commanderies, which I'll be covering soon, and these were all nearly copied from Chinese histories. The Hanshu briefly notes the establishment of four commanderies in 108 BCE, and the Shiji, of course, documents a much more detailed account of the events leading up to the establishment, as we covered extensively in the last episode uh, of the Han Gojosen War. So back to the history, Um, quick review. You may recall from our last episode that the Emperor Wu of the Han Dynasty conquered gojo in 108 BCE. So let's talk about why they, con- why they attacked gojo in the first place. Here's a quote from the Shiji. Um, quote, you shall guard the barbarians beyond the border. You shall prevent them from raiding the border. And should the chiefs of the various barbarians wish to have an audience with the emperor, you shall not obstruct them that was ba- unquote that was basically the instructions from emperor wu to um uh, Wiman joseon so based on that knowledge we know that first it emphasizes the need to protect and and, and guard the barbarians uh man yi equivalent to the ter- general term yiren. this is all in chinese second the statement stresses the need to maintain stability in the outlying areas adjacent to gojoseon This condition was intended to prevent skirmishes that could arise from old Joseon uh, dominance among the eastern barbarians. Third, the various groups of eastern barbarians were to be allowed to engage directly with China without interference from Gojoseon. Direct engagement meant an audience with the Chinese emperor with a view to paying tribute. Gojoseon was to be first among the eastern barbarian tributaries and and an exemplary model in the region. But Gojoseon did not comply with Han's uh, the three conditions for several reasons first the outer vassal system was weak and without binding power whether or not a polity observed its duty as an outer vassal was directly discretionary han lacked the institutional capacity to enforce its own terms and we'll be ta- we'll, we'll talk we'll mention a little bit about um han, how han dynasty went through any other cycle like any other country in the world they went through expansionist aggressive times and then they Drew back to more isolationist times. So, a lot of what happened—the the attack of Gojoseon by Han China—was during a time of expansion. But as many things as as often happens, uh, even in our modern day societies, uh, you get a change of leadership, and then those expansionist policy, policies are quickly uh, changed. Second, Old Joseon was not in a uh, sorry old. Uh, Gojosan was not in a position to observe its duties as an outer vassal. At that time, Gojosan was home to a considerable population, said to have numbered in the tens of thousands, of Han Chinese who had fled from China. Wiman, who assumed the kingship of gojo after the coup, was also an exile from China. Third, this also reveals that prior to the reign of Emperor Wu, gojo san forsook its position as an outer vassal of Han to become, quote, the left arm of the Xiongnu. Qu- unquote. And there's a lot of speculation um, on what the real relationship was between Gojo-san and the Shangnu, which was like the, the fierce northern tribes who um, Han, the Han China had actually declared a war on during that period. So from this, we know that, uh, you know, Gojo-san was starting to flex its power, and Han China, for many reasons, I'm sure, decided to attack them. They, they felt like, well, These guys have caused enough trouble. We're very worried about how they are not allowing, apparently, allowing some of the outer, quote unquote, barbarians to come pay tribute to us. Who knows? Maybe Gojo-sun was actually actively blocking tributes or maybe killing tributes that were on their way to Han China to pay tribute. So what is a commander? That's a really good question, actually, because it's not very clear, especially from if you were to just read the Wikipedia entries, for example. So commandery um, in Chinese, I believe, I don't know the correct pronunciation, but I think it's Jun. In Korean, it's Gun. So during the Qin Dynasty, which is around 221 to 206 BCE, China set up its first known two-tier administrative system. The largest territorial unit was called a Jun, or quote-unquote, or commandery. And within the Jun were counties called Xi'an. There were 36 at the time for, you know, in the Qin dynasty. Later in the Eastern Han dynasty, China moved to a three-tier system. Now the largest unit was a Zhou, then the Jun, then the county. There were initially 13 Zhou and 100 Jun. Um, Quote from Wikipedia, a Jun was a historical administrative division of China from the Eastern Zhou until the early Tang. It's usually translated as a commandery. A commandery, Jun, uh, here's another uh, definition from Byington. A commandery was a major unit of territorial administration of the Han Empire. Each commandery was divided into districts, which were then divided into successively smaller units. So uh, what I don't have complete clarity on is at the time when the commanderies in Korea were formed and called Jun or commanderies, were they the exact same units that were used for internal China? And I, I still have not found that uh, found that answer. Um, also, the way commanderies is used can be very confusing, especially as it relates to material evidence, because the commandery itself is a territorial unit with a political boundary. Meaning, if you looked on a map, it was basically it's kind of like a province or a, a prefecture. It's it's huge. It's a, it's a it's a massive uh, amount of land. But a lot of times, historians will refer to a particular archaeological site as the Leland Commandery, for example. So they're they're using it in multiple ways. They're not referring to the entire commandery, which is a territory. When they use the word commandery, they're actually referring to the seat of the commandery or the headquarters or whatever you want to call it. Because back in those days, it's not like you had real. It's not like you could build an entire wall all the way around this huge, massive uh, territory. You had to have a walled city, essentially, kind of like the capital of the territory. But a lot of historians will, in shorthand, I'm sure, because it's easier, will just refer to these headquarters as commanderies. So just keep that in mind. Okay, so the four commanderies of Han are the following. Uh, Lilong Commandery, pronounced Nangnang in Korean, Nangnanggun. Gun is uh, the Korean pronunciation of commandery. BC one hundred eight to BC uh, CE three thirteen had twenty five prefectures, sixty two thousand households, had a population of about four hundred six thousand at its peak. The Linton Commandery, um, in pronounced in Korean, it's pronounced Imdun Gun. Uh, BCE one zero seven to CE eighty two. The Shuantu Commandery, we'll be covering a lot of these in the next episode, pronounced Hyundogun gun in Korean. The Zhenfan Commandery, or Jinbon-gun in Korean, BCE-107 to BCE-82. Before we cover these four slash five, there's another one called Daifeng, which we'll be mentioning, but the, ones, the four that I just mentioned are the main commanderies, and if you were to read kind of mainstream uh, his- history, Mostly they focus on these four commanderies, but I'm covering six because there's because of Daifeng, which comes later, it's a split off of Lilong, and because there's a pre commandery called Changhai. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly in Chinese. In Korean, it's Changhegun. So, Changhai was founded in 128 BCE and abolished in 116 BCE, so only lasted about 12 years. And it lasted only a short duration in the lands of the Ye, and its existence may best be understood as a trial attempt to establish the commandery system in a region. So there's another reason why I love studying what studying the Han Commanderies, because you get to you get an insight into a youngish uh Chinese Empire. Obviously, China had been around for, you know, thousands of years before then, but it, it's almost like they were, you know, this is kind of the first. dynasty where we have enough um, historical records to really see how they are setting up their administrations and how they're dealing with outsiders and conquest of outsiders. So Han China is experimenting with the administration of their growing empire in the same way that the Roman Empire did with theirs. And Shanghai was a result of one of those, but it only lasted 12 years and they shut that down. But presumably what they learned from Shanghai went into how they ran the other commanderies. The first semi-permanent commandery was Lilang or Nangnang in Korean. The seat of Lilang is basically Pyongyang, the current capital of North Korea, if you didn't know, or just south of it, but the the commandery itself encompassed the land around it from the eastern coast of the peninsula inward towards the mountains. It was established first in 108 BCE after the war, it was the first commandery to be established, and two other commanderies were founded founded that year as well, Zhenfan, which is immediately south of Lilong, and Lintun, which is almost directly west, hugging the other coast of the peninsula. A year later, in 107 BCE, Xuantu is founded, right north of Lintun. And so by 107, you have your four major commanderies. If you look at a map of North Korea, these four commanderies saddle the eastern and western coastlines. They do not cover the middle of the peninsula, probably because that is basically a mountain range that cuts North Korea in half north-to-south. But in 82 BCE, barely 26 years later, the Han reorganized. They shut down Zhenfan and Lintan and merged them into Lilong and Xuantu. So if you're looking at a map, the two southern commanderies on each side of the peninsula are rolled into their northern counterparts. So now we have two large commanderies remaining, one on each coastline. By 75 BCE, or six years later. Xuantu itself is shut down. Its headquarters and all its people re- relocated all the way to the other side of the border near Liaoning, in China, obviously. Its territory itself, or whatever territory is remaining, is merged into the jurisdiction of Lilang. From a top-level view, the Chinese are retreating and consolidating. They started out with four commanderies, then they reduced down to two, and the last one has to be relocate- relocated out of gojoseon entirely. They're now down to effectively one large commandery headquartered in Lilong. There were several reasons for that change. First, there was continued resistance from the locals. For example, Chinese records state that Xuantu's relocation was due to attacks by the Emac people. Second, these shutdowns and consolidations were part of an overall Han policy at the time. Five years earlier saw an aggressive expansion policy due to Grand General Hu Guang who was ruling as regent at the time. By 75 BCE, the Han had changed course and were pulling back. In fact, they also shut down the Donner Commandery in Nanyu region in 82 BCE. Nanyu was, we think, uh, present-day Vietnam. Third, the system heavily relied on ethnic Han who lived in the area. This was a time when especially the Lilong Commandery had received many migrants from China. We're not completely clear on why they were escaping the Han regime, it might have been the war with the Shangnu or something else, but the Shiji and other documents record that many tens of thousands of Han had settled in Gojoseon. So what was life like in the capital of Lilong? Before they were defeated, the state structure of Gojoseon was a familiar one. At the center was a king. And uh, However, each region was semi-autonomous and appointed officials such as ministers or sang in Korean and commanders or Jangun in Korean. Obviously, after losing to the Han, this structure was severely disrupted. As soon as the Lilong Commandery was established, Han China began migrating en masse. We, stu- we discussed before it could have been because of war or maybe because of economic opportunity or freedom, probably for the same reasons that anyone migrates to a new land. Thus, the new Lilong Commandery was run by ethnic Han as is apparent from the burials of the social elite. While there were lots of ethnic Han in Lilong, there weren't as many in the farther commanderies of Zhenfan and Lin Tun. From the archaeological remains of Lilong, we identify three main groups of Han. The first were the officials dispatched from the central government to help administer the land. These were called Commandery Governors or Tesu or or tai, tai Shou in, in Chinese. And district magistrates, or jang, uh, jang in Korean, sorry, who were dispatched by the central government. Records mention the names of 11 governors and eight magistrates in Lilong Commandery, all of whom were Chan, Han Chinese dispatched from the central government. The official policy for these two official, top officials was that they were rotated through Lilong for only a temporary amount of time, very similar to the State Department for the US today and for you know, the Ministry of Finance or the Ministry of Trade and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for pretty much any, any nation in the world. They kind of send their top, their top diplomats for just a couple of years because obviously, hey, if you're coming from the capital of China and you're educated from the best universities there, um, you're part of the social elite and uh, good luck convincing your Wife and your kids and your family that uh, you'll be moving permanently to some rough new territory called Korea. So they're they're rotated through territories, and I'd imagine that the ones that serve in Korea may eventually serve in um, Nanyu or uh, present-day Vietnam as well. And if you died in Lilong, your body was conveyed back home where you could be buried. Again, very similar to governments today. I mean, if you're you know the ambassador to korea if you die in korea you're not gonna if you're the u.s ambassador to korea and you die there you're not gonna have a funeral there and you're not gonna be buried there you're gonna be taken back home um so this is important because much of the evidence that we have for these times is from studying tombs given this policy we can assume that these officials are not buried at li unless there was some you know terrible tragedy the second were aids or Shu-li in uh, Chinese, or Song-ni in Korean, who were in principle recruited from the indigenous people. But in the beginning, many were imported from the Laodong commandery, probably because they didn't trust the locals, and rightly so because the war had only lasted one year, and I'm sure it was still fresh in the minds of the the Gojo-sun people. This is clearly indicated by the rebellion led by two feudal lords, Wang Hyup and Choi, between 105 BCE and 99 BCE. Uh, Probably in response to these rebellions, Lilong afterwards began to appoint more locals to the aid position. Last were merchants. And I'll quote from uh, Bientin's book, historical records also confirm the presence of merchant groups in Lilong. The cases of other outlying commanderies similarly show that there was considerable movement on the part of merchants seeking economic gain whenever a new outlying commandery was established. Whether Lilong was as profitable to the Han Empire as other outposts in the southwestern regions remains questionable, but we do see a considerable influx of merchant groups from the interior commanderies in pursuit of economic profit. Merchants economically exploited the native population with the backing of local rulers, which, on the one hand, upset the traditional social order in Gojoseon society, but on the other, facilitated the receipt of cultural influence from Han China. Unquote. So that's not a surprise. I mean, much like the British East India Company or the, you know, Dutch East India Company or whatever, there's going to be profiteers everywhere, right? So you're a Chinese merchant and um, you're looking to get ahead, and you're looking to make some money. And uh, you hear that the Chinese government has just conquered a new territory that is rich in natural resources. So you're going to you're going to go over there and check it out. There's considerable evidence of the Han and Lilong. Tombs with mandolin-shaped bronze daggers, roof tiles with clearly Han inscriptions abound. But what about the indigenous Gojo-san? And just to pause for a moment there, when I talk about bronze daggers, so the mandolin-shaped bronze dagger is exactly what it looks like. It looks like kind of like a, it's bulbous in nature. It looks like a, a, kind of like a guitar. That's strongly associated with the Han dynasty. Uh, that's a really good clue as to whether someone is aligned with Han or not, because later on, around that period in time, we start to see straight, I think they're called straight shaped or straight edged bronze daggers. And that is associated with the indigenous uh, Koreans there. So Gojoseon and other other empires. Roof tiles, also extremely important. So when you look at a uh, typical uh, structure from that period in time, You'll see on the, so you, you have the typical pagoda type roof, which is kind of curved and excuse my language. I'm not an architecture uh, buff or anything. But when you look at the rooftops, um, what looks like kind of uh, um, cylindrical piping covers the length of the rooftop, rooftop and uh, at the ends, as at the end of the roof edges, um, these cylindrical tubes need to be closed off, and you'll see these round circular things made out of tiles made out of stone or ceramic or whatever that cover them. And that's traditionally been used as a good way to put a lot of inscriptions on there to kind of demonstrate your status. So it could have, um, in some cases, it could say "Lilong affluence was a very important um, uh, common inscription that we saw for rich people from that area. And that was a clear indication that these were ethnic Hans that had immigrated to Lilong from from, uh, China. Sometimes you'd see like uh, their title as well, like a minister, for example. So there are three indications that local leaders were a part of the Lilong uh, power structure. In the first century BCE, the first included includes the wood-framed tomb, or in Korean, um, which is a wood frame or chamber into which a wood-caught fin is placed. Inside these tombs, we find slender bronze daggers. That's what I just mentioned. In uh, Korean, it's Dong Gum, and flower shot, uh, flower pot sheep uh, pottery, and short neck jars called Ho in Korean. These are distinctly non-Han items and associated with Gojo San. This is distinguished from the first century CE when we find more Han items in burial sites at Lelong. And again, to pause on these uh, types of evidence, so the slender bronze dagger becomes a really really important uh, historical artifact when. Trying to think of, trying to discuss how powerful um, the local Gojo-san dynasty or state was before Han attacked. And a lot of the argument is that they started receiving bronze daggers from um, Yan, which is the, the uh, easternmost um, kingdom of China, you know, in 300, 400 BCE. They started receiving bronze uh, daggers from them, which were mandolin-shaped, but by the time Gojo-san got into war with Han Dynasty, we started to see these slender bronze daggers that did not exist outside of uh, Korea. So clearly, I mean, that's a very clear indication that there was an advanced state that existed. We just don't have a lot of evidence for many, many reasons, right? Uh, The evidence was lost. Uh, destroyed during the many uh, modern wars that Korea went through or maybe they're just locked up in North Korea and we just can't see them. So based on these items, we theorize that these tombs must have belonged to the local lords from Gojoseon. This is corroborated by a written document recovered from one of the tombs at Tong in Pyongyang with a th- seal that says Bujo Yegun. Bujo was a region of uh, Gojoseon located near the east coast of the Korean peninsula that had been co- incorporated into Lilong commandery. Yegun means basically a, a lord of Ye. Ye is one of the uh, um, indigenous tribes on the eastern coast of Korea. Uh, not tribe, it's actually a state. "Quote: uh, I'm quoting from Mark Barrington's book, the Chinese employed local leaders with strong political and economic connections as lower ranking officials for their labor section or gongjo in Korean and assistant magistrates or jubu in Korean. Positions and various other departments Bringing them into the newly established system of government at the district level by bestowing upon them such titles as chieftain or upgun. So, partially in response to some of the rebellions I mentioned by local officials, and obviously, partially to appease the local population who clearly were a strong, um, uh, which was a strong polity and not just a you know a collection of tribes. Uh, the Chinese the the Chinese were incorporating the local population into some of these secondary officials, official uh, titles. I want to step away a little bit to talk about some comparable history, to give us some historical perspective and, and um, take a look at what's developing in Korea in relation to the rest of the world. So as reference, as Peter Aykroyd writes in the History of England Foundation, um, written in 2011, Julius Caesar invaded the British Isles in 55 BCE. So not much longer after um, Han China attacks um, Korea. So about 50 years afterwards. But this was just a reconnaissance force in 43 CE. So, uh, you know, um, 80 years later, 90 years later, 20,000 men, under the leadership of Aulus Claudius, land in two places and score a definitive victory over the indigenous Brits. The Emperor Claudius personally came to the island and upon his return was celebrated for having received the surrender of 11 kings. This is in contrast to Korea, in which the conqueror of Wiman was considered by the Chinese as victory over all of Gojoseon. A couple of other noteworthy points. The British have great records of many of the rebellious indigenous Brits, including Bodice the Queen. Also of note is that the estimated 125,000 Roman soldiers required to keep order on the island afterwards were made up mostly of men from Gaul, Spain, and Germany. By 49 CE, Roman soldiers were supervising mining operations in Somerset. So they didn't waste a lot of time in in taking their resources from the British island and uh, Aykroyd writes that the reason why Rome was so interested in the British Isles is they recognized kind of the economic value of it, the natural resources there. By the third century, the country was divided into two provinces: Britannia Superior, with London as its capital, very, very similar to um, uh, Lilong, with Pyongyang as its capital, and Britannia Inferior, with York as as its center. The two areas were later subdivided into four and then five provinces emphasizing the fact that the country was being closely administered and exploited. Again, very, very similar to what the Chinese are doing here. By 408 CE, with the Roman Empire falling apart, northern barbarians attacked the Roman English. The Roman English defended themselves and then threw out the remaining Roman overlords. Again, it's hard for me not to draw a comparison because roughly in the same timeline, around 313, 313 CE, the uh, the resurgent Goguryeo Empire would finally throw off... Uh, the Han commanderies and the yoke of China forever, actually. Um, from then on, it's really, uh, it's uh, as I mentioned, ethnic minority groups such as the Mongols and as such that conquer or try to conquer Korea. Never Han China again, except with the Sui dynasty, but that was a failure. Again, a rough t- similar timeline is seen with the Han commanderies. So around 400 years, uh, by about 313 3- ce um, Goguryeo conquerors or takes back uh, Northern Korea from the Chinese. How about the locals? Okay, let's talk about some of the locals that Lilong commandery people um, dealt with once they got there. First, uh, I want to mention the Jin Empire, um, which I didn't mention in my last episode in which I should have. Um, the Jin or Jinhan in Korean existed before Joseon was founded in 185 BCE, It seemed to be a polity that existed south of Gojoseon in modern-day South Korea. It is mentioned in the Chinese histories as a land to which uh, King Jun of uh, Gojoseon fled after having been ousted by Joseon. It was powerful enough and stable enough to contend with Gojoseon at the time, but by the time the commanderies were set up, it seemed not to have been an issue anymore. But it remains an important documented polity in the ongoing dialogue of proto-Korean states and there is still new evidence being dug up on the Jin, uh, the Jin Empire, so uh, look forward to seeing that. The Han commanderies weren't set up just to control Gojoseon. We learned that in the last episode that Gojo-san was key because it served as the intermediary between Han China and the rest of the outlying peoples, including the Xiongnu to the northeast and the local states to the south on the peninsula. But for now, let's touch upon just some of them. I mentioned in the last episode that one of the leaders of Gojo-san, Minister Han Um, was from a state called Han. Again, not to be confused with the Chinese Han. And from now on, I will try to... It's an unfortunate thing in English that, uh, you know, the Han Chinese and Han uh, Korean is is pronounced uh, pronounced uh, similarly. Actually, they're pronounced similarly in Korean as well. So I'll try to distinguish between the two. Um, quick side note, one theory of where the Korean Han word came from that it's derived from the word for tribal chief in their native language at the time. So either Han or Hangi. Anyway, by the 3rd century CE, these tribes will have organized into three main states, uh, states, Byunhan, Mahan, and Jinhan, together known as Samhan. And we'll cover these in later episodes for sure. In 1988, numerous Han period artifacts were excavated at the uh, Tahori site in Changwon, South Gyeongsang province, or Gyeongsangnamdo. That's as south as you can get on Korea. So uh, these things, you, you can tell that the Han had far-reaching um, tentacles that reached even to the coastline of uh, South East Korea. These include burial mounds with mirrors and wuju coins belonging to the Western Han period, dating the site to around 1st century BCE. Historians point to this in saying that the Lilong Commandery had wide-ranging influence all the way to the tip of the peninsula. Meanwhile, on the east coast of present-day North Korea, the Ye Ye people were farmers, fishermen, and hunters. Of all the so-called Eastern barbarians or Dongyi, the Ye people were thought to have been the most proactive in seeking alignment with the Chinese. Unlike the Korean Han, they adhered to Chinese cultural norms such as disallowing marriages between individuals with the same surname. Historians theorize that they were incentivized to align with the Chinese because they were semi-sedentary and needed to cover a lot of ground for hunting. Therefore, they needed to make nice with the Chinese. The thinking is that the Linton Commandery was established on the East Coast for the Ye people. There are artifacts suggesting that high-ranking members of the Ye survived in both, served in both the Lilong and Linton Commanderies. So if you imagine your map of the four original four commanderies in your mind, how they're straddling uh, Northern Korea on either coasts, um, east and west coast, Lintan was the southwestern commandery that was eventually, you know, quickly abolished actually. And it people say it was because of Ye people at the time were very well organized, very strong, and basically were the cause for that. Getting back to our history. So in 37 BCE, Goguryeo is believed to have been founded. We will cover that in extensive detail later, not to worry. But for now, let's follow along the path of the commanderies. In 25 AD, and I guess, and we are jumping way ahead here, a man named Wang Diao in Chinese, in Korean it's pronounced Wang Jo, killed the Lilong governor, Liu Xian, or Yu Hyun in Korean, and established his own regime, appointing himself Grand General and Governor of Lilang, or Dejanggun Nangnang Tesu in Korean. Um, again, this happened also with the English in the Roman Empire. Uh, there was a lot of rebellions there and a lot of the local. Um, Roman uh, governors of uh, of Britain basically tried to take the entire island away from the Roman Empire, usually with uh, bad results. He did this during a time of tumult in the Han Dynasty, because this is shortly after the fall of the short-lived Xin Dynasty and during a powerful uh, struggle for the throne. Lots of Chinese from the Shandong region emigrated to Lilong during this time, probably to escape the turmoil at home. Subsequently, Archaeologists have found, have in particular, found many similarities between the Han tombs in Lilong and those in Shandong. Shandong is essentially that uh, peninsula that juts out towards North Korea from China. It's not Lilong. Lilong is a smaller peninsula uh, directly north uh, west of Korea, but Shandong, um, as a crow flies, is that could. In certain cases, be even closer to Korea than uh, parts of Liaoning. So there's a lot of people from Shandong and Liaoning that actually end up in Korea. I did read a lot about what was going on in China at this time, but honestly, it's it's like a never-ending, bottomless pit of information, and so I'm not going to get too much into it. Just know that during this time, there's a lot of struggle uh, in the Han in the Han Empire. Um, there's a lot of rebel kings from places like Shandong and Liaoning that are trying to break off from China and declaring themselves independent. There's a lot of war and turmoil. So as you can imagine, that's affecting Lilong. Um, I will uh, I will talk a lot about this in the next episode, actually, and we'll cover exactly how Dai Feng was created because of one of these rebel warlords from, uh, from Liaoning, or I think it's Shandong. But just realize that uh, during this time, From those two regions in China, there are a lot of people, um, taking a boat or making the trek cross land to get to the Lilong commandery. So there must've been something really attractive about Lilong and Korea in general to these people for them to escape their home country and make it all the way to Korea, which at the time must've seemed infinite, um, miles away or kilometers away for them. Um, In 30 CE, Emperor Guangwu's expeditionary forces would take back Lilong. So what happened was um, he he took it back from the, the rebel governor. Many of the recent immigrants who had aligned with Wangzhou would then flee the commandery itself, moving southward and eventually integrating into the southern Korean states, such as Samhan. The unintended effect was that this spread Chinese Han culture into the south of the peninsula. So here we have Han meeting Han, Korean Han meaning Chinese Han and, you know, mixing, mixing it up. This is kind of hard to imagine, especially given our perspective on clon- colonialism. Imagine a mass migration of mostly well-to-do people from Hebei and Shandong making the big journey to Lilong in order to escape war at home. They were clearly politically active because they basically aligned themselves with the rebel leader at the time. Now further imagine these people leaving the comfort of their commandery to assimilate into the indigenous Koreans to the south. Imagine the first settlers in America from Britain seeking better opportunities and imagine them separating completely from the British and seeking to assimilate into the native societies there. It's unimaginable because of the stark difference between the Europeans and the Native Americans at that point. Thus, the situation in the Korean peninsula must have been markedly different. The difference between the living standard and the cultural advancement between the Han Chinese and the Han Koreans must not have been that big during that point. And again, that's another argument to say that there's a lot of naysayers that say um, before the Chinese arrived, you know, Korea was just you know a bar- barbaric land. But clearly, um, uh, from the evidence we have from uh, Han Koreans and the Ye people, etc. Um, they were an advanced society, um, advanced enough for a lot of these emigres essentially from China to escape Li Long once they figured out that the Han dynasty was asserting its power over their rebel leader and disappearing into the, uh, well, not necessarily disappearing, but assimilating into the Korean societies to the south, but bringing along with them the culture and the knowledge of the Han Chinese. So with that, we're going to stop. I didn't intend for the Han Commanderies to have more than one episode, but there's so much good information, and and it's so interesting that um, I was able to split this into two episodes. So we will continue with our story about the Han Commanderies in the next episode. Until then, take care.